look, it might be stating the obvious, um, but whenever I get up here to speak to you guys, uh, there is a strong sense in which I feel my own insufficiency. It's right that way, um, because I am, like us all, a, a man who's been broken in sin and who still walks with a, a sinful nature that competes against the, the spirit within me. Um, but particularly on a day when you follow up that testimony and that gospel kids talk, good golly, this feels like I'm going to be the B act today. Um, fortunately, this isn't an act. Fortunately, we're coming to the word of God. Fortunately, we can trust him to be faithful even when I'm a bit mediocre. So, um, yeah, I suppose what I'm trying to express is thanks, Bron, for sharing that. That was so deeply moving. And thank you, Catherine. Uh, that was crazy, in a good way. Uh, <laughs> um, hey, why don't, we, why don't we pray together and then we'll dive on into this. Uh, God, thank you for your word for every part of it, that it all points us towards you, Jesus. Uh, we pray, Lord, that today you'd be lifted up high, that uh, not just through my words but in our hearts you'd be lifted up, that you would be glorified in us, that we would love and long for you um, and we would see that, that desire fulfilled in you uh, and that we would see your glory in a greater way than we have before. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Um, let, me, let me start today by asking a question. Uh, did you ever have a plan uh, that you'd kind of worked out, uh, but it just didn't go the way that you planned it? Um, if you don't nod, then I don't know, you're probably in denial, I would say. Um, I, I think I've had them, yeah, like, like Anita just said, all the time, right? Um, I, can, I can think of loads of plans that have gone deeply awry. Um, you know, Globally, we could refer to 2020 and 2021 as things that we planned that didn't go the way that we planned them. Um, you know, it's that feeling of, of panic that comes when it's not happening the way that it was meant to happen. You know, perhaps you acted on impulse, uh, assuming that something would just work out the way that you wanted it to, or perhaps you planned meticulously and at every point your meticulous planning just fell apart. The, the reality contradicted the intentions. However you got there, you reach a point where you just need to go back to the drawing board, right? Because your plan failed. Um, this happens to individuals, as we all know. It also happens on a, on a larger scale to groups, even to nations. You know, the best example of this phenomenon that I could think of when I was thinking about this um, was, was a thing called the, the Schlieffen Plan. Has anyone ever heard of the Schlieffen Plan? Anyone? Come on, any history buffs in the room? All right, all right, I'm going to take you down a little road. A little detour here. Um, here's what happened. Um, the Schlieffen plan was the German plan for what they would do coming up to World War I. Uh, it was designed by a general whose last name was, you may have guessed, Schlieffen. I'm probably saying it wrong. I'm just putting it out there. Um, so here was the plan. So uh, rather, the Schlieffen plan was born out of a dilemma. In Europe, there was this sense that at some point there was going to be a big war again. Ever since Napoleon's days, there was this gist that at some point, and then there was the kind of Franco-Prussian wars in the 1800s, and you had this sense that at some point it's going to break out again, and there was this complicated web of uh, alliances in Europe. And right smack bang in the middle of that, you have Germany. Germany had a bit of an issue. Uh, France and Russia could be reliably trusted to back each other up, France and Russia being either side of Germany, if you know your geography. And so they had to come up with something. 
war seemed inevitable, how would they deal with it? And, and they realized they couldn't deal with it on two fronts. They couldn't win a two-front war. Uh, so, you know, the French front was heavily guarded along the border there. And so that would be a great challenge. And Russia had troops coming out of their ears. And so it just seemed like failure would be inevitable if it was just left to happen naturally. And so they came up with the Schlieffen Plan. The Schlieffen Plan went like this. Russia was slow to get together. They had lots of troops, but it would take them forever to get them on the field. Uh, they, so Germany would avoid the front with France, go through Belgium and the Netherlands, invade France, get it done, get to Paris, lickety-split, two weeks, and they're back to fight the Russians before they've even mobilised. Brilliant, right? Like, like, very well considered, very well thought out. Um, <laughs> in theory, wonderful, except none of it happened right. It all fell apart, like, at every point. Uh, 1914, war breaks out. You're aware of that part of history, yeah? Like, like World War I. Um, and they activate the Schlieffen Plan. Uh, but, but just very early on, it starts to come apart. Compromises come very early in the face of circumstances. Uh, the Eastern Front uh, looks a bit too threatening for the guy who's planning the defence, for him to follow the Schlieffen Plan. Schlieffen's not the guy in charge anymore. It's a, it's a guy called Moltke. And, and he goes, oh, well, we'll leave some more troops over there and not take them to France after all. Little bit of compromise. Um, uh, they, they decide, oh, let's only go through Belgium and not Belgium and the Netherlands, which takes them longer, of course. They anticipate Belgium not being very hard. In fact, they, they say to Belgium, just don't fight back. We'll just walk through. We're not going to hurt you. And Belgium obviously does not go for a giant army walking through their country and fights back. And, and they were banking on the British not getting involved and the British get involved. Circumstances don't go in their direction. Um, there is some success. They make it through Belgium. They make it into France, about a, hundred K, a couple of hundred Ks, I think, into France. Uh, but ultimately, uh, internal failures pull them apart. Um, one of the German armies invading France detours. They decide, hey, let's go and help this other German army. And they turn in a direction where they think there's no Allied forces. But there's all of the Allied forces. And they get a, the, the six-day Battle of the Marne. Uh, which I'm probably also pronouncing incorrectly. Uh, now, remember, two weeks in and out for France, where they're meant to be. Six days is a long time in two weeks. And then add to all of that, Russia does a spectacularly unexpected job of bringing it all together and gets to the front before anyone thinks it's going to happen. And what you have is that the, the plans collapsed. Germany had to go back to the drawing board. And, and if you'd like to know more about the history there, because we're going to leave it there, and you know, there's obviously all the pre-war stuff as well, um, you, can, you can go and look that up. Uh, I can recommend you a good podcast after this. But we are today continuing on in our series through the big picture of the Bible. Uh, seeing the big plan, the big story of God, with one hero at the centre. And from the beginning of the Bible, we've seen this repeated kind of theme, that God is the God of plan and of promises. And today, today we're stepping into the prophets. Um, and today, there's a bit um, of a point in the story where we might be led to wonder whether God's plans, however meticulously laid, may have failed. From the moment that he created Adam and Eve, God's been working to bring on, sorry, to bring a precious, loved people to himself. We've seen that again and again. 
And although Adam and Eve fell, that theme persisted and has been persisting. We've seen it. God is the God of plan and of promises. Even as they left the garden, God promised Adam and Eve uh, that Eve's descendant would crush the head of the serpent, Satan. But then we we came to Abraham and we saw a significant progression uh, of the plan of God, working out through the promises of God. God called Abraham and his descendants to follow him. And God promised to Abraham that he would be with his descendants, that they would be more numerous than the stars of the sky, that they would be his precious people in his chosen place, and that through his offspring, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And from that moment, we see the plan more clearly following this family. In Egypt, the family of Abraham became numerous, very numerous, and and the promises of God began to centre on not just a family, but, but it becomes a nation, Israel. And when God called them out, he promised the nation of Israel that if they would obey him, he would bless them and be with them and that they would be his precious possession, a people who would dwell in his special place accompanied by his uh, special presence. You see the, the Eden idea coming out in Israel there. Indeed, he entered into a, a conditional covenant with them. We call it the Mosaic Covenant which guaranteed blessing for obedience, uh, albeit with the counter-guarantee of cursing for disobedience. And the the promises have continued beyond this. To David, God promised that his descendant would reign forever on the throne. And there have been many moments of promise that we have not addressed as we have moved through this big picture of the Old Testament. which I'm sure many of you are aware of. Yet the theme of God's plan developing through his promises, as we saw last week, has been met at every point, actually, by the reality of humanity's sin, our brokenness, our rebellion. Really from the beginning, from Adam and Eve and on through every generation, sin has been the universal theme of humanity. Sin that separates us from God, sin that condemns us to death. If any of this is like, well, you're blowing my mind here, go back and listen to the rest of this series if you're joining us and you haven't been part of it. And that theme also has been rising and rising, especially in the story of the nation of Israel. You know, God had graciously saved them out of Egypt, out of slavery, out of suffering, and called them to be his treasured possession. To Pharaoh, God had even said through Moses, Israel is my firstborn son. You don't get more affectionate than that. A people blessed with every opportunity for blessing through obedience. And yet, as we saw uh, last week, a people cursed by persistent, pervasive disobedience. Sin, which escalated to frightening heights until finally God sent them into exile. Um, Once again, that's last week. And, And it must be repeated, though, that this doesn't happen because Israel are worse than everyone else, because uh, we would have done it better, but because humanity, even in the best circumstances, uh, even, even with every possibility of getting it right, every, with, with God doing the heavy lifting, with every opportunity to obey, we need change at a deeper level than what happened there. We need change at the level of the heart. And as we saw last week, these two intertwining kind of opposing themes 
have continued to grow. Even in the exile and even after the exile, Israel sins. Israel is separated from God in their sinfulness. And even in the exile and after the exile, God persistently sends them promises that he would make his people holy, that he would cause them to dwell with him, that he would give them a new heart, that he would give them a new covenant, that he would provide for them a perfect world in which to live, a world without death and without suffering. And if you read the Old Testament, you can't help but feel this tension, I think. Uh, the, the, The rising question of the Old Testament Have God's purposes for Israel been thwarted? Particularly, particularly considering the conditional covenant with Israel. We go, has it just failed? Is it just something that gets scrapped and replaced? Is is God just going to throw it in? Uh, You know, is he just like us in the end? And he had great intentions with Israel, but now he'll have to, you know, go a different direction. Or or he'll have to um, just, just scrap this whole humanity experiment as a whole. You know, we, we felt we, we ruined it. He can go and do something else. Indeed, it isn't just the readers who feel this tension as we go through the Old Testament. It was evident even to the returned people of Israel. Yeah, as we said last week, after the exile, there was this remnant that was able to return to the land and to rebuild a shadow of the glory of old Israel. Yet even more than a century after that return, Ezra, Ezra the high priest of Israel, uh, reflecting on the people's current persisting sin, he cries out in Ezra chapter 9, verse 14. He says, uh, would you not be angry with us until you consumed us? He's reflecting on the current sin. Consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape. So we ask again, has the Mosaic covenant failed? Is that what we're seeing here? Has Israel failed? And today, we come to an area of the book of Isaiah, the prophet, who, as we've seen, brought both uh, condemnation to the people and promises of restoration to the people. And within the last chapters of Isaiah, there's this group of passages Uh, which have come to be called the Servant Songs. Funnily enough, we looked at one of these yesterday at the conference. I had no idea who was going to do that. Um, We're going to focus mainly today on the Servant Song uh, of Isaiah chapter 49, verses 1 to 6. Uh, So if you have a Bible there and you didn't open it when we did the Bible reading, do that now. I'm going to flick mine back open there. But the servant songs introduce us to a person who, uh, at the time, must have been something of a mystery. There you go. Something of a mystery to the original readers. Uh, this, this servant of the Lord. Um, and although if, if you know a bit of the book of Isaiah, you might have a fairly decent idea of who the servant is, allow me to ask you to suspend that for a second. whilst my tablet that's got the sermon on it also suspends for a second. There is, a, there is a complexity to how this servant is represented. 
Uh, and when we truly understand who he is, when we really grapple with it, then it brings out the answer to that question that we asked before, has Israel failed? In perhaps a more profound way than some of us might have seen before. And it does it by answering an even deeper question. The question under the question is, who is Israel? And as we find the answer to that question, we gain a breathtaking glimpse of God's plan spanning all of history, going from beginning to end, an insight into the fulfilment of all of his promises. And we gain insight into who we are within his plan and within his promises. Come, let's, let's read this together now. I've, I've, I've spoken enough for it. The first three verses of the song focus us in on the identity of this servant. Read the first two with me. It says, Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver he hid me away. Now, stop there. Stop reading. Don't, don't look down. Don't do that. It's not a good sign when your pastor tells you not to look at your Bible. Just putting that out there. Um, but, but we will get there. But, but first impressions of the servant of the Lord. Who are we talking about here? The answer, if you know your New Testament a bit, is that there's imagery here that clearly indicates for us that this is Jesus we're talking about, right? That this guy is Jesus. God is promising here the saviour who would make everything right. And verse 1 tells us that he will be uh, intimately known by God. That's what it means when it says, the Lord called me from the womb. And verse 2 tells us that he is the weapon with which God will win his victory. He is the weapon in the hand of the Lord. In fact, not just that, uh, but the way in which the weapon is used by God is his words. It says, he made my mouth like a sharp sword. Now that, if you know your New Testament, should, should ring some bells. That's imagery that we see arise again of Jesus, especially in Revelation chapter 1, right? Verse 16, when John sees Jesus glorified in a vision and he says, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. So the immediate answer, which seems obvious on our side of, of the cross, is that this servant is Jesus, right? That, that's, that's fairly clear. Who will God use to fulfill his promises and to complete his plan? Jesus. Don't worry, Warren, he's, he's indestructible. Um, and yet then we get to verse 3. And verse 3 makes us double-take a little bit. Uh, verse 3 names the servant. Uh, and we might expect that we're going to see something like, you are my servant, Jesus, or you are my servant, the Messiah. Uh, but that's not what it says. It says, he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. This is, this is one of the tensions of the sermon songs. You read anyone who, who, who credibly writes on the sermon, servant songs, and what they'll point out is that the servant songs talk about an individual and about a corporate body. Like it kind of talks about both. Um, and, and it seems a bit confusing the way that it talks about a person and a person who is Israel. On the one hand, they speak about a man, 
And that man must be Jesus when you read these songs. The servant song of Isaiah 52 to 53 speaks of him growing up like a young plant with yet young plant yet with no majesty, despised and rejected. Uh, the suffering servant we get there, who is fulfilled uh, explicitly in the suffering of Jesus. And if those words seem familiar, it's because, yeah, it's explicit. The New Testament picks up these themes and points us to Jesus as their fulfillment. But then on the other hand, they identify the servant as Israel, as God's chosen people. It's pretty clear here. It's even clearer over in chapter 44, where Isaiah writes, Hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. See that? Servant, Israel, Jacob, one. And it's critical that we get what's happening here. This isn't just a confusing moment that we should throw our hands in the air uh, and say, well, too hard. Um, and it, it also isn't just some Old Testament passage that originally spoke about the nation of Israel, but which the New Testament authors kind of repurposed for their own ends. Uh, no, and if we have any respect for the Bible, we can't go for that, by the way. Um, what we see here is profound, and it is profoundly, uh, it profoundly builds our view of what God is doing in all of history. And it profoundly answers the question, has Israel failed? And the answer is, Jesus is the true Israel. You see that? It's unavoidable here. You see, what we have seen so far of Israel in the Old Testament is Israel failing to meet their covenant obligations. Israel failing to be Israel, essentially. Um, and people whose sin keeps them from fulfilling what they were called to. Now, don't get me wrong, there's, there's been those in that who have had faith in God and faith in his promises and still sinned. Um, they've been redeemed, though they still sinned. But Jesus, Jesus would be the descendant of Abraham through whom the world would be blessed. Jesus would be the truly faithful Israel. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah uh, really promise, they've got this theme of a faithful remnant after the exile. And now the servant songs ident identify uh, a remnant of one. The New Testament displays this. Matthew's gospel in particular, which shows Jesus' life as a reflection, quite intentionally, as a reflection of the life of Israel, but at every point, perfect where Israel failed. You know, to give a few examples, the flight of Jesus to Egypt mirrors the flight of Israel to Egypt. Jesus' time in the wilderness reflects Israel's time in the wilderness. Israel is called God's firstborn son, yet Jesus is truly the son of God. And we could go on. Whole books have been written establishing this connection. Uh, like sinful Israel, Jesus would suffer God's judgment on the cross. Like ex exiled Israel, Jesus would endure an exile of three days in the grave. Like restored Israel, Jesus would experience the true restoration of resurrection life. Yet where Israel was characterized by sin and disobedience, Jesus is the truly obedient Israel. And you see, this answers the question, did Israel fail? Yes, the nation failed, 
to live up to the law, they failed to keep the covenant. The exile establishes that pretty firmly. But the true Israel, Jesus, Israel the servant of God, well, here's what he had to say about it. He said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He is the true, obedient Israel. But the servant songs reveal for us something even more profound about this true Israel of one. He will suffer for the sins of God's people. He will carry the punishment of our sins. Isaiah 53 verse 5 says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. The true Israel of one redeems a greater Israel. By his suffering, God's people are saved. And the effect of that, let me say, you might, it's, it's possible you hear me saying that and you go, okay, so Israel starts at Jesus and that's not what I'm saying. Don't hear me wrong here. The effect of that reaches out ahead of Jesus into the current age. It does. In fact, our, our servant song in Isaiah 49 actually establishes that. Uh, he writes in verse Five, that the servant will redeem Jacob. In case you were wondering whether it was just Israel, and Israel who redeems Israel is a bit contrary. Um, Many from national Israel would believe in Jesus, and many still do. But more than that, he writes, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may, may reach to the end of the earth. Jesus would bring in a people, an Israel, that was not ethnically defined. And so Paul can refer to the church. If if you're wondering whether the New Testament picks this up, Paul can refer to the church as the Israel of God in Galatians 6.16. Peter can use the words of Exodus and apply them to the church in 1 Peter 2 when he says, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. But, but the saving work of the true Israel Jesus does not just bring those who came after him into being Israel, God's chosen people. Jesus is the redeemer of all of God's people throughout all of history. All who trusted in God were ultimately trusting in him, do you see? Even alongside the sin of the Old Testament people of God, we did see, and I've mentioned this, that there were many who trusted God. Not perfectly, and none of us do, by the way. Even though they failed, even though they sinned. You know, you had the Abrahams and the Sarahs and the Moses and the Davids and the countless others who either we don't have time to name or who didn't even get named in the Old Testament. The Bible says it quite clearly in Hebrews 11. It lists a bunch of the Old Testament people of God and identifies them as God's people because they lived by faith. And then it says, all these that commended through their faith did not receive what was promised. 
since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. They were commended by their faith. What that means is that their faith did rescue them because God's promises were good. But their faith was in promises that would be fulfilled in the new covenant. Their faith was in what arrived in the person of Jesus. Do we begin to see the immensity of God's plan? You know, next week in the series, we're up to Jesus. Um, and, and, and here in the prophets, the picture begins to come into much more clear focus. Jesus is the fulfilment of it all. And we've got um, one thing left to cover here. Um, actually, I'm going to jar this and chuck something in there that's just going to seem out of place and for like five people in the room, it might be helpful for me to say, uh, which is that I don't think any of this excludes something like uh, a large-scale coming in of, of, of ethnic Jews at the end of time. If you're new to church, you're like, what is he going on about? If, if you're not, you might be thinking, yeah, he's referencing Romans 11. Um, I think that may well be what Romans 11 says. Um, I don't think that's excluded by this. Back onto the train. One thing left to cover here. And it's an important one, uh, which we'll... Uh, We'll press into more as we come to the New Testament, um, but which our text demands that we give time to today as well. Um, I said at the beginning, uh, as we see who true Israel is, we gain insight into who we are within the plan and the promises. We've seen already that when we understand Jesus as the true fulfillment of Israel, then we do understand ourselves, right? We understand who we are. We are God's people. We are the saved people of God. In fact, much of what this servant song says about Jesus becomes a blessing applied to us as his people. Just like the one who was called from his mother's womb, those who are in Jesus are intimately known and loved by God and called out by him. Let me chuck it in there. Maybe you haven't put your faith in Jesus. Maybe you've sat in church your whole life. Maybe this is your first time. I don't know. But faith in Jesus is to come into that intimate relationship with your maker, to come into the joy of knowing him through the saviour Jesus. And if that's you, then please take today as your chance to trust in him. But this passage gives us more than our relationship to God now. Maybe it shouldn't be surprising since the, uh, since the beginning of this series, this tablet has not worked so poorly. Since the beginning of this series, we've seen that our relationship with God defines all of our other relationships. The vertical relationship defines the quality of every other relationship. Well, here in the passage, Isaiah 49, we see a glimpse of how the people of the true Israel whose partnership with God is restored through Jesus, how we are then to live in this world. That final verse is fascinating. Let me read it again. Um, it says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant, speaking of Jesus, obviously, to raise up the tribes of Jacob. Too light a thing that you should be my servant just to raise up Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I'll make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. 
What's very significant is that this passage gets picked up three times in the narratives of the New Testament. And all of them are by, by the author, Luke, by the way. Luke 2.32 gets applied to Jesus. That seems like the obvious application, doesn't it? Like no one's going, what, Jesus is the servant? If you, if you are, did you listen to the first half? Um, we're not only halfway through. Um, twice, it's used in the book of Acts. Uh, there's this gentle reference to it in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, pretty famous passage, where Jesus tells his disciples, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Do you see that little echo at the end there? But then Paul, in Acts 13, verse 47, he directly quotes this word for word, and he says, for so the Lord has commanded us, speaking of himself and his colleagues and of Christians, saying... I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. See what's happened here? Those who are restored to God, those who are the people who live by faith in Jesus, the light of the world, we become lights to the world. Do you realise this is a part of your identity, a central part of your identity if you're a Christian? You have come to faith in Jesus, the light to the nations, and so you are called to carry his light to the nations. You are called to do it, to fight God's war the same way that the servant does, by the word of the good news about Jesus. As a part of the history-spanning, redeemed people of God, we are called to be a people who speak his good news to those around us and to display it with our lives, to live gospel-formed lives. What God is doing to you, he's intending to do through you. This is a pattern that we see again and again and again and again and again and again and again in the Bible. We are called to the work of sharing the good news about Jesus. That's not just some Christians. You know, the Bible never speaks of evangelists as the only Christians who are meant to share the gospel. In fact, they, it speaks of evangelists. The one time it uses that category, it says, uh, well, no, a couple of times actually, but um, it says he gave evangelists to equip the church for the work of ministry. So evangelists are given to equip people to evangelize. Fun fact. It's not just some Christians. It's all of us. God has placed it as a central purpose in our lives. In response to the saving grace that we have received in Jesus, we are to carry that grace to others. When we talk to people who are struggling, we are a called people in that context. We're called to bring Jesus into those conversations, to share the hope that we've found for our struggles. Because he is the light that saves the strugglers and the saviour who carries the burdens of the afflicted. When we are sharing our joys with our neighbours, with our friends, with our colleagues, we are called to tell them of our greatest joy, Jesus. And we are called to offer this joy, this comfort, this salvation to all. And we're called to display that gospel light in the actions of our lives. This is why the holiness of God's people is so important. 
we see. Because we're, we're called to reflect his glory. We're called to reflect his light to the world. You know, to lie, to steal, to gossip, to sin, and not to repent for us as Christians is, is not just some list of rules that we're meant to follow just because, you know, well, that's what moral people do. It's a denial of who we are. It's a denial of the message that we bring. It's a denial of Jesus, in fact, because it denies the power of his saving work in my life. And likewise, if we form our actions through the gospel, if we let uh, the incredible love and grace of Jesus that we have received inform how we act toward others, and so we we care for our families with tenderness, the tenderness of the Saviour, and we love our neighbours in in radical self-sacrifice, and we invite into our lives those who may be uncomfortable or lonely or poor or widowed or fatherless because we were invited into the family of God by the sacrifice of our older brother, our great Saviour, like Bron talked to us about today then we're not just trying to be a morally good people, do you see? We're a community of the gospel that's radically dedicated to showing his light to the world. And we're fostering opportunities to show and to speak his light, his gospel to others. Would you pray with me that we'd be able to do that? Jesus, thank you that you are the redeemer of your people in every age. Thank you that all of the promises of God find their yes in you. I thank you, Lord, that you've redeemed me. None of us us deserved. None of us were worthy. In fact, all of us were profoundly worthy of condemnation. But you, you've called us in. You've sat us at your table. You've shown us your light. Your salvation has reached even to us at the ends of the earth. We pray, Lord, that as we see Jesus, as we know him more, that we would be a people formed by the gospel formed by the good news of what you have done in rescuing us and that we would carry your light out in our lives, secure in the fact that we are saved by the servant, by Jesus. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.